John chapter 5, 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from, from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Great. Thanks, Steph. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, thanks for coming today. Uh, we are in, uh, as you just heard, we're in John, the end of John 5 today. We're in a series in the Gospel of John, doing uh, preaching every word. So we'll be in uh, the series for a while if you're just joining. But um, today uh, is, uh, in a lot of ways, Jesus is still in this um, kind of like the state of giving a monologue to the Jews uh, after he heals the invalid. If you remember that from the first part of John 5, you're here for that. And so it goes back, a lot of even today's stuff goes back to uh, verse 18, which is uh, where it said, for this reason they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, uh, making himself equal with God. And, um, and so Jesus is still responding to this. Uh, the, the verse 19 and following, really the rest of chapter 5, um, it's kind of unique, actually. Jesus doesn't always um, respond to this, you know, form of, like, um, at least silent criticism. I think he knows their hearts and knows this is a question and a problem. What's, it's going to eventually uh, get him crucified. Um, but he responds. And so he's been in this state of um, talking to them. Again, it's more of a monologue than a dialogue. But he's responding to this idea and delving further into the mystery of his own oneness with the Father. And although he doesn't need to, to defend himself because he's God, he kind of does. He, he talks in this passage about those things, those different things that have testified to him or borne witness uh, about him. And I was thinking this week, it really does, it taps into human experience quite well in that when we hear something crazy or kind of off the wall bonkers or something brand new or something that challenges what we formerly thought we knew, uh, we tend to follow up with the question, where did you hear that? Or who told you that? Or where did you read that, right? Uh, not because we necessarily, tr uh, you know, don't trust the one uh, telling us these things, but something deep within us wants another source behind the source 
to authenticate its claims. So maybe a trusted news site or a scientific study or a professional of some kind who has experience with the thing that's being talked about or someone who clearly has no agenda uh, or just a trusted voice from a peer uh, who has a history of only spreading uh, true information. Um, and so even Jesus here says, you know, if, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, which is very interesting for the Son of God to say that, right? Um, but a lot of it is stemming from this verse in the Old Testament where it says, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so John here is showing us that, that this law was written for the sake of Jesus. He's fulfilling this idea in John 5. He is the truth. He is the matter in focus, and the matter has to do about his sonship uh, to God, his uh, divinity, his deity, uh, his authority to change the Sabbath law and redefine it around himself. All of that is being established by other witnesses. And the witnesses in today's passage are, are threefold. Uh, John the Baptist, Scripture, uh, or Moses, the Old Testament, all those are synonymous, and Jesus' works, or like his pre-cross works. Think like uh, his, his miracles primarily, but we'll also kind of um, uh, talk more about that, that idea a little bit later, uh, later on. And you could also add God the Father here. Maybe you saw that in the reading. Um, it says that God the Father also testified about his son. He backed his son. Uh, but, and so it could be a fourth, but in another sense, this is about the Father as well. Uh, and so I, I'm keeping them out because in a lot of ways, these testifiers are testifying about the Father as well and not just uh, the Son. And so, and because Jesus says here, no one can see him or hear him, you know, uh, speaking of the Father, the, these, these witnesses, because they're, they're visual and a bit more um, em, uh, empirical or, or, or tangible, uh, play play a special role. In fact, a lot of theologians talk about, um, though this is a very you know, commonplace theological idea, but that no one knows God alone on the basis of, uh, of just God. Like, you have to know God through a mediator. And this is something, you know, backed time and time again in the Bible. We, we know this, Jesus being the ultimate mediator. No one knows God except through, and there are different kinds of mediators throughout the Bible, and there's one great mediator, Jesus Christ and him crucified. But no one knows God just, you know, on the basis of that there is a God. He is known because no one sees him, no one hears him. He is known on the basis of Scripture, known on the basis of um, how, he, how he reveals through creation, but especially on the basis of Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right, so little bunny trail there. But th there's a few ways to lay this passage out then. Uh, you could look at this passage on this basis and say, let's just talk about the, the witnesses, like what are they and how do they witness? Uh, but if you read the passage carefully, there's a lot of like, it's not just about the witnesses. There's a lot of ping-ponging back and forth between how the Jews have loved the messenger but rejected the message. Um, and so there's a condemning aspect to this. And, and then how there's also glimpses of hope and good news uh, thrown within it as well. So this, this passage caters pretty well to a bad news, good news uh, type setup, which is how I'd like to organize it for us uh, today. So for those of you who kind of like the, the big picture, uh, there you go. Uh, and it's also in the sermon insert too, if that helps you. But I have three things for each, three bad news components and three uh, good news components. So we'll start with the bad news. Uh, first, I'm going to use uh, the word we, 
When I talk about the bad news, uh, meaning all of humanity, the, the Jews being a microcosm then of the human experience, uh, you could say whether it's national Israel, the Old Testament, or the first century Jews um, of the, the pre-cross gospel narratives, they're, they're pictures of us in different ways. Um, now, if you're a Christian, now what I'm about to say, all of these things don't apply to you in the exact same way. They might not be as true about you anymore. Uh, and they certainly don't stand between you and God anymore at all, like because Christ has abolished the, the, wall that they, the, the wall that they serve uh, between you and God. But there is still something to say about this still being a part of our story and something we might still cling to or things we might still be inclined to think uh, and identify ourselves around. So I'm going to use the, the very broad we here, meaning all of you, if you're a Christian, uh, if you're not a Christian, if you're considering being a Christian, um, all of that really is uh, the same here. So, all right, so I have three things. The first is, uh, the first bad news component is that we have loved the gifts more than the gift giver. Jesus is saying, if you love John the Baptist, why don't you love me, the one he was sent to prepare the way for? The one uh, he said, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world about. Uh, if you claim to love God, well, he's the one who sent me. So why don't you receive me? If you search the scriptures, the Old Testament for life, how can you reject me? Because the scriptures are all about me. Every word in the Old Testament is about me. So if you're searching the witness of the scriptures for life and missing me, uh, how can that be? It's, it's sort of like saying, why do you love Christmas Eve but hate Christmas Day? Uh, why do you love the picture of the Grand Canyon more than actually being there? Like you, you love this picture on your fridge of the Grand, the Grand Canyon, but you hate the idea of going there yourself? Like what, what's going on? It uh, reminded me of uh, Romans 1 where it talks about how humanity at large has worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Uh, it, it's the same idea. And, and part of the idea of that is we're, we're the creatures. So uh, we not only worship the sign or the symbol or the witness, the thing that, that's meant to point beyond itself. But a lot of times we worship us. We, we worship what we've made with the works of our hands. Uh, if you follow Israel's story in the Old Testament, um, a lot of it has to do when they, when they worship idols. It's not just that it's a false god idol in front of them, but it's the fact that it was fashioned by bronze made with their hands. So they worship, look what I've done. They worship what they made, the beautiful thing they created. Uh, which is synonymous with worshiping uh, the works, uh, our works before God, moral or otherwise. It also made me think of how uh, the disciple Peter, if you remember the story, how he warms his hands by a fire uh, right as he's denying Jesus, who is being arrested and who is, who is himself the light of the world and being dragged away to be, to be crucified. And you could say the one who allowed Peter to even have the small temporal blessing of the fire in the first place. And so, lots of sad ironies there, we could go on, but in both of those scriptural images, we get a picture of us turning in on ourselves, uh, warming our hands at the fire of us, worshiping things that we thought we had a hand in making, but we really didn't, which we'll end up seeing here is a big part of why the Jews and others, all of us, uh, have rejected Jesus, uh, is that there is a... Um, we try to attempt to make too much of a synergy between us and the divine, between what we accomplish and what God has to give. Uh, it made me think too of John the Baptist earlier in the gospel, if you remember when he says, I'm just the best man at the wedding. Jesus is the groom. 
So I, I need to get smaller and less important, and he needs to get bigger. The spotlight needs, it'd be, it'd be odd at a wedding, right, to sort of amplify the best man and sort of make it all about him, and the groom's over there saying, what's going on? You know, that'd be weird, and, and that's kind of what John the Baptist is getting at, is um, it, th- there is an order to these things. There are witnesses, and they're the things that are witnessed about. There, there's someone saying, the truth is coming, and then there's the truth, Right? And there's an order to that, obviously. And if we start to, to worship the, the sign or the gift or the pointer, part of which we might feel like we had a hand in creating, which we didn't, um, it starts to um, show forth the true state of our heart and what we're really believing saves us in, in the end. More on that later. The second part, uh, the bad news, is that we've read the Bible wrongly. Uh, Verses 39 and 40 say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It actually sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? You're searching the scriptures for eternal life. Like, why don't we say that's that's not a bad thing? And yet Jesus is saying, you're still missing things. Uh, it's, It's they, he says, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, same idea kind of as before, but another side lesson here to consider is that it's possible to be really well-versed in the Bible and still read it wrongly. And that's what's happening here. It's possible to love the Bible and yet read it wrongly. It's possible to be really well-versed in it, trained in it even, and yet completely swing and miss when it comes to proper interpretation. I remember uh, hearing it in seminary, the sentiment that we needed to read the Old Testament like a Jew in order to understand it. Uh, the, the idea being there that it's their book and understanding the original context and getting inside the mind of the human author is the key to unlocking the mystery. It's the key to understanding. But verses like this make that idea very problematic because Jesus is saying here the Jews did not read the Bible right. Because they read it as though it were more about them than him. And of course, a non-Christian, whether a Jew or Gentile, is not going to read the Bible as though Christ is the point because they're not Christians, not centering everything that they do and think around Christ. And so they moralize the passage. There's actually kind of two ways really to read the Bible is you see Jesus in it or you moralize it. Um, not that there aren't morals at, at some v- various points in the storyline, but that's what they were doing. And Jesus is saying, when you moralize passages, moralize these stories, make it about you, you read it wrongly. If you don't see Christ in the Bible, you read it wrong. You just do. And these are Jews who knew, I mean, on, on like a factual basis, like informational basis, they, they knew the Bible. Many of these were probably Pharisees. They, they had large swaths of the Old Testament memorized know it better on that basis than most people, and yet they still missed it. Christ is the key. And so they read it in a Jesusless way. You know, many people have called this a narcissistic approach to Bible reading, and they're right. Uh, the Bible's not about you. But, but the problem with thinking that it is, is not just reading it wrongly, but reading it to exemplify us, which again is, is narcissistic and prideful and sinful. So, um, so read the Bible like a Christian, uh, not, not a Jew. Or like, like the, the, um, the Jewish Christians who were the apostles who wrote the New Testament, read it like they did. Read it like the New Testament reads the Old uh, and not like a, a non-Christian uh, Jew in the first century, at least the ones that he's talking to uh, here. The key to understanding the Bible is Jesus, not original context, not the original author, 
but Jesus and him crucified. Understanding that in him uh, opens up true meaning. Without it, without him, uh, we, we, we remain completely blind. Uh, Jesus says here in verses 45 to 46, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so what he's saying here is Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, he accuses uh, these types of Bible readers. He accuses narcissistic Bible readers because he himself wrote of Jesus. He he wrote about Jesus uh, quite directly, actually, in many places. But uh, and also indirectly and symbolically. But, but the other layer to this would be to say that Moses and what he represents, so saying Moses as, as the man of the law, accuses moralistic readers who think they're actually, who think they're keeping it, keeping the law, even though they can't and never have. The law, the Bible says elsewhere, uh, kills, but the spirit gives life. Um, it exposes, it, it strips us bare. It's keeps us shivering in the cold. And, you know, and that's one way it prepared us for Jesus. Like if, if um, we talk about, if we were to talk about like the principle of preparing each other for something, like you could say um, you, you prepare someone for something by saying that it's coming. But you could also say I prepare someone for something by giving the opposite of that thing first. Uh, it, it would be like if I had control over the weather which I don't, so there'd, be, there'd never be winter again. But, um, but if I did, I could prepare you for spring, uh, not just by holding a calendar up for you, but by giving you the harshest of winters first. And in that sense, I would prepare you for spring really well because you would want spring. You'd be ready for spring. You'd be hungering for spring. You'd be clamoring for spring, and you wouldn't miss it when it came. And that's what the law did. It was winter. Uh, it's imprisoned everything under sin, Romans 5, uh, 20 says in context. Um, and so when it came first, uh, it it's, um, exposed things and it made people want the clothing of Christ. It made people want the better solution. Uh, made people want the spring all the more. And, but, and so and Jesus is saying here, you love the winter too much. You missed the point of the winter's witness the winter witnesses to spring and that it's the opposite of spring. It's, it's pointing ahead to it. And now that I'm here, you're staring right at me and, and you're missing me. And so, again, it's this, very, this is actually one of the harshest things probably for a lot of Jews to hear is that you have read the Bible wrong your whole life. Your whole life, you've read it wrong. Uh, you've read as though it's about you. You've been content with the winter not understanding that it was meant to forecast the spring. And now I'm here staring at you. Spring is, March 20th is here, um, and, and you've missed it, all right? That all leads then to this third piece, which is we've wanted the glory. Uh, verse 44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? All right? This, again, this is putting a cap on what he's already been saying So in a lot of ways, we're making explicit here what was implicit before. But how can you believe or trust in God when you're so busy receiving glory from each other, patting each other on the back for all the amazing things you've done, highlighting the works of your hands and not being able then through that to receive the works of God? They are oil and water. Uh, So this puts a cap on it, but in essence, it's saying that the essence of sin is self-glory. It is self-deification. 
It is getting glory from other people rather than receiving the glory that comes from God. Uh, it, it is to say, if you were to rephrase it here, uh, it's like Jesus is saying, how can you believe when you're so busy working for your salvation? How can you, and getting glory from other people's praise. Salvation comes down from heaven like glory comes down, not out from within your soul as if you're the source and if, as if it's about your ascension. And a lot of it, again, has to do with how we read the Bible. But at the core, refusing to come to Jesus for life reveals our beliefs about what it means to be saved. But notice the contrast here. Hating the glory that comes down from God, you know, for the sake of loving the glory that comes from us or from other people, the shared glory amongst people, like it's this uh, club, social club, that can't stop talking about how amazing we are, like an echo chamber of morality. They can't stop highlighting each other's awesomeness. Um, hating the works of Christ for the sake of all of that is the same as thinking that our works are sufficient. Do you see that? Not seeking the glory that comes from God is the same as saying not seeking salvation from God, but believing it comes from us or other people as they praise us for what we've done. We either hate the works of God in the place of loving our works, or we lay down our glory for the sake of spotlighting the works of Christ. There's no middle ground. Uh, John 10, 32, this is a little bit later in the book, so we'll preach this later, but Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I always love that response because it's like unanswerable, you know? I've shown you many good works from the Father. Now, for which of those, just to be clear, are you going to kill me right now? So the Jews didn't think they were stoning Jesus for doing good, but they were. And again, the greater truth behind this is that they were stoning him for doing good over and against their works. See, if you identify yourself on the basis of what you do before God and others, you hate it when people are better than you. It is a threat to you, a threat to your whole worldview. That's precisely what's happening here with the Jews, is they believe they were right before God based on law-keeping, based on works. So when Jesus comes to do better works, more magnified works, things they could never do, like turn water to wine and heal the paralytic, they want to stone him. As Jesus says here, there's no love of God in their hearts. In fact, that's probably, if you were to rank all these things, not that that's important or necessary, this is probably maybe the worst of things Jesus says to them. And these are people that thought they loved God. In their law, it said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they thought they were keeping it. But Jesus is saying, you have never kept it. Not once. You thought you had. You, you sought the scriptures for life in the law. But since you missed me, you starved yourself. And you forsook the salvation that it was offering you the whole time by saying spring is coming. And through the hints of Moses saying another one like me from among your brothers is coming from Deuteronomy 18. Another one like me is coming, speaking of Jesus. Not looking for him, you look to yourself. And they love themselves. Like, to say, like, there's no love of God in, your, in, your, in their hearts, that's because they love themselves. You can't love yourselves and love God at the same time. Like, the world says love yourself, right? But by that, they're, they're also saying um, there's no room for God. 
um, maybe a cheapened, pathetic version of God that you're like your pet or something, but actually God. You can't love yourself, centralize yourself, worship yourself, and God at the same time. Uh, what does Jesus say elsewhere? You can't serve two masters, can't serve both God and money. Do you think that you can serve yourself and God? Think like you're an exception to that? Of course not, right? There's no love of God in their hearts because they love themselves and what they thought they had done for him. Law and love cannot coexist. Law and love cannot coexist. Law does not breed love. Only love breeds love. And God is love. So the only way to become loving is to be one with God, to be saved by God, to be filled with his spirit, to be moved by the love he first showed you. Like you guys will never become more loving people by trying to keep the law, love the Lord your God with all your hearts, our mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you, if you view your life as living under that, under the weight of that, the expectation of doing that, it will never change you in the right way. It just won't. Uh, but you will become more loving as you attach yourself, as you, as you become one with the only loving being in the universe. Who not only came down into earth to walk among us and to love us and listen to us and heal us, but who died for us. And not only that, but who sent his spirit to indwell us. Do we think this is somehow uh, imperfect or impotent or not enough? Like as if, as if we need the law as well? Is it sort of sufficient? Is it, is it an appendix or an appendage? Or is it a wholesale replacement? And Jesus is saying it's a replacement. Law does not breed love, only love breeds love. But their hearts were calloused. The, the Jews' heart, and ours are too many times, but the, the Jews' hearts here were calloused, spread thin by hours and hours of striving and working to bolster their own self-image before God and others. And it turned them into snakes. All right, the good news. Three things. The first is the law of Deuteronomy 19.15 points us, actually, to a grace. Remember, this is the verse that said, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The very law that Jesus is quite clearly here, John the Apostle is not shy about this, quite clearly fulfilling uh, in, in this passage and talking about the multiple witnesses that testify to him. Uh, but in Jesus' humanity, if we were to like... Um, you know, spin the diamond a bit, twist it in the light, and to look at this from a different facet. Uh, in Jesus' humanity, like us, there's a grace here for us as well. And it's in how this points to our exoneration before God, how the, quote, matter of our salvation is solved by others and spoken to by others, not by us. It actually says it can't be solved by us. Uh, no one person is enough. Uh, if you were to, like, again, uh, look for the grace, the forward-looking grace in this law, um, it's saying that no one can save themselves. No one can speak to, functionally speak to their own salvation. Right? No, no one can do that. Uh, in other words, we aren't asked to justify ourselves uh, or to serve as our own defense in the courtroom of heaven. Isn't that good news? God is not asking you to defend yourself before him you know, based off what you've done in life or based on how well you've believed in him or how good of a Christian you are. That, that, that's according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, that is invalid before God. Invalid. But 
Instead, Christ is our defense. Christ is our advocate, 1 John 2, 1 says. So if the matter is, I'm saved from my sins, I'm a Christian, and the response from someone else is, or even your own heart is, no way. Who says you are? Where'd you read that? What source do you have? The answer is, well, I didn't say it. Someone else said it. Christ said it. And in that, he not only worked for us, but he witnessed to my salvation. God says, he is my son, or she is my daughter. He declares us saved outside of us. Jesus as our advocate, our, the speaker to our salvation is what matters. Not you and what you think, not what you've done. That, that, that doesn't matter before God. What matters is that Jesus advocates for you, that you've been washed by his blood, and then he looks at you and says, this one's mine. But see, like this law is giving us a whisper of, that's what makes us saved, right? Someone else outside of us saying, this person is a Christian. This person is okay. This person is pure. This person is forgiven. That's, that is like, you know, Christianity 101. I mean, basic but profound, right? But pure, unadulterated Christianity is saying we wholesale reject the idea that anything we can do before God matters in the courtroom of heaven. Wholesale reject it. As scandalous and offensive as that might be to many, even to Christians, wholesale reject it. And we say what matters in light of all of this is that God has said, saved. They're okay. They're mine. I've shed my blood for them and they now have a seat at the king's table as well. And relatedly, the other piece of good news here is that Moses accuses, but Jesus doesn't. Did you guys catch that? The, the passage says that Jesus, Jesus is clear. Like, you have an accuser and it's Moses, the man of the law. Um, I will never accuse you to the Father. All right, this is one of those places to step back, step back a bit. And whatever your view is on law grace distinctions in the Bible, I mean, you guys, most of you know we have a position here on that that we make quite clear uh, every week. But if you don't share it, that's fine. But just back up a bit and don't bury the lead. This is a passage that says Moses and Jesus are different. Moses does something that Jesus never, ever does. They are not the same. Not, and we're not, not only not the same because one is God and one's not, but they're not the same because the testaments they represent are not the same either. The man of the law accuses with the law because we haven't done it. Like a mirror, it's held up. But the man of grace in Jesus Christ doesn't accuse us, but rather absolves and forgives. It reminded me of Hebrews 12 where it says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. Uh, if you remember that story, the blood of uh, Cain cried out for vengeance and um, revenge and condemnation. But the blood of Jesus, when it's spilt, is, even though Abel and Jesus are very similar because they're both innocent sufferers, they're both killed by brothers, uh, Jesus' blood is different. It's a New Testament blood, not an Old Testament blood, a New Testament kind of blood that cries out for your forgiveness. It cries out for your exoneration, cries out for your washing, cries out for your acquittal. It's a better kind. 
And so the Moses-Jesus comparison here is quite similar. Um, the thought, like, if you've ever had the thought before, I'm a bad Christian, you guys ever had that thought if you're a Christian? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, if you haven't had that thought, you're really, really weird. Sorry, but, but you just are. We love you. But you're, you're very odd, and you're the exception, not the rule. Um, most of you had that thought daily ever since you were a Christian, and I really mean that. I know I have. But that thought, I'm a bad Christian, is accusatory, and it always, 100% of the time, comes from hell, not from heaven. Let me repeat that. If you've ever heard in your mind, I'm a bad Christian, after you've done something, thought something, didn't abstain from something, didn't measure up to your Christian peers' level of spirituality, whatever it is, that thought is demonic. It's accusatory. Jesus never accuses. Ever. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? If this is true, ever. Not like on the day of judgment, we get a, we get a pass because we prayed a prayer, right, at one point in our life. No, I mean now. He doesn't accuse you. Today, he doesn't accuse you. He accepts you. Everything, everything about you, he, he puts his arms around and he exonerates. He dies in your place so us as sinners can be declared righteous by our trust in him, not by our works. So the thought like, I'm a bad Christian, or even the thought like, I need to do more, I would say, is never from God. Uh, that, that is also kind of a cousin to acu- accusation. Um, but again, the reason for this is Christ does not accuse you of your works. Man, please hear this. I know a lot of you already knew this, but do you live as though it's true? Do you, have you applied the gospel in this way to your heart? Have you grown in the gospel in this way so that every day you know how and in what way to reject the idea that I'm still lacking a little bit? On my worst days, I'm a little bit less of a Christian. On my best days, I'm a little bit more. I feel a little bad about myself on the bad days and a little bit better about myself on the good days. Uh, Maturity in the faith looks like not doing that. Those of us who are mature, Philippians 3 says, think this way. We pursue Christ and him crucified and raised. He is our starting block. He is our race. He is our goal. He is our reward. He's everything. It's nothing else. But Christ does not accuse us of our works, but he washes us with his blood. Those are different things. Winter has truly given way to spring, and we are meant to see it. So how does he do all of this? You know, uh, we still have to ask that question. To wrap, to, this is the third and final thing, but, um, or better yet, what truly witnesses to the name and character and glory of the Father and to the legitimacy of Jesus' divinity and sonship and mission. Uh, verse 36 here says that the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, sent me to save. I didn't put it here, but verse uh, 34, I think, says, I'm telling you all this so that you might be saved. Isn't that great? Does you know Jesus wants to save you? Jesus has these hard conversations with people that want to kill him because he wants to save them. He's, he is a, a textbook enemy lover in that regard. But I digress. But this is like the main thing. In verse 36, my works, Jesus is saying, my works are the ultimate witness. 
Jesus' works are the most important part, better than John the Baptist. You could say as it flows from Scripture, it's the same, but in a lot of ways, it's more clear than anything in the Old Testament. The question of who is God, who is Jesus, how do we know we can trust him? Well, look to his works. Who else can turn water to wine? Uh, Who else has the same kind of compassion for the sick as we just saw in the first part of chapter 5? But look not just to his miracles, but to the greater works that he said were coming in John 5.20. The Father will show the Son even greater things than what he's doing in his early ministry. Those are smaller, preparatory, just like the Old Testament is smaller than the new. His early works in his ministry are smaller than the bigger work of raising the dead and dying for your sins and mine. That's the greater work that's coming. This is a very forward-looking, kind of helpful comment, isn't it, to hear that there are greater things? Like when, in other words, when you guys read your New Testament, according to Jesus, you should never place everything that Jesus does on the same level. Or you break what he's, you, you don't read the Bible the way Jesus does if you do that. Like everything he's doing has a purpose. It's all from God. It's all good. But Jesus is saying there are lesser and there are greater things, right? Do you believe that? Do you read the Bible that way? And this is, kind of goes back to that, you know, that uh, piece about the Old Testament too because we could apply it there. I won't go, go there today for time's sake, but you could apply it there as well. But I'm talking just between manger and Gethsemane. When Jesus is born to when he's arrested. What do you do with that section of scripture? Is it preparatory and forward-looking primarily? Or is it kind of like its own thing? And it's, it's, Jesus is saying here with the word greater, it's the former. It's looks ahead. It's preparatory, not, not ultimate. So the greater works that, that Jesus himself is saying, the, the Father's saying this, Jesus is saying this, that the greater work is coming. I'm going to call into tombs and call out dead people. I am going to die for the sins of the world. Uh, and in fact, elsewhere, the, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign for why he's doing this. this same idea. Give us a sign. And Matthew 12 says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And so Jesus is saying, Jonah's story is about me. I'm the second Jonah. I'm the better Jonah. And that's the only sign I'm going to give you, which is interesting because John seems to be saying a little bit something different when saying he's acknowledging the things he's doing are witnesses or kind of like signs. But Matthew is saying here, he's putting more of the emphasis on the greater sign. And when you see the cross as the ultimate sign of who God is, those former signs start to matter a little bit less. This don't matter, just a little bit less. This dwarfs everything else. The great sign of Jesus' burial if like you want to know who God is, he says, look at my bloody son. Well, what else? You're not going to get anything else. Stop asking God for other things. Stop expecting him to have a, a subsequent revelation like a Mormon. Stop asking. Like there's nothing else. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the sign we get. And every other sign in the Bible falls subservient it serves the purpose of that greater work, the best work. And so there is no Christianity that doesn't center on the cross or the empty tomb, right? We talk about this in previous sermons. 
There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. There's no such thing as a bury-less Christianity or resurrection-less Christianity. It actually happened in history. It's real. It's physical. John the Baptist looked ahead to it. The Old Testament looked ahead to it. Jesus' smaller works looked ahead to it. But the ultimate sign which is coming is that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. And that's the ultimate sign in all this last paragraph to read, to wrap us up. The ultimate sign that we know that God loves us and what he's like is Christ's death and resurrection. He died for you, not to accuse you, but to save you. Not to keep you shivering in the winter of the law, but to warm you with the spring of grace. Not to simply heal your physical paralysis, but to forgive you of your sins. This is the glory that comes down from heaven and never, ever comes from the works of our hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It's a, um, it's a high one. It's heavenly. It's very John-like, hard to understand, mystical. Yet we, we hear your voice. You're the voice of our shepherd calling out to us, promising a grace from outside of us, a grace that comes down rather than draws us up, a grace that is contrary to the law, contrary to the man of the law, Moses, doesn't accuse and expose and lay bare uh, all our failures, but rather covers them like a blanket. Think of um, Noah's sons and how Ham uncovered his father's nakedness like the law would later do, but Shem and Japheth, um, who are the ancestral line of Jesus, cover their father. Uh, it's a great picture of how the law, how, how law and grace distinguish themselves from each other early on in, in the Bible, nine chapters in. You cover, you clothe us, you warm us. And to know that we're loved in spite of what we've done, that's everything. That is o- the only way to healing, salvation, and the only way to become loving ourselves is through the love of the gospel. Never, ever uh, the commandments. Uh, it, it kills, but the Spirit alone gives life. And so help us, God, as a people to bask in the sun of the gospel and to find transformation there and not to expect it to find transformation elsewhere. To read the Bible rightly as though it's about you and not about us, not narcissistically, uh, but humbly as though it's about the hero Christ in every word, every verse, every prophecy, every psalm, every proverb. We, uh, we ask just your, your nearness to us as we endeavor uh, to, to learn more and uh, to bask more in the future. But forgive us our sins, make us new, help us to respond uh, with faith and with thankfulness. This last song, in Christ we pray, amen.